You know, as we were singing that song, I couldn't help but think of a number of years ago, my wife Diane and I had a really good friend who would occasionally sing at weddings, and he was at a wedding one time, and bride and groom had asked him to sing, and even though he was singing, the groom also sang a song to the bride at the altar. So they walked down the aisle, you know, they're doing the whole wedding ceremony, and at a certain point, take a break in the ceremony, the groom goes over and gets a microphone to sing a song, and he sings the old hymn to his bride, I'd rather have Jesus. (laughs) Which is a spectacular old hymn, but maybe not the moment you want to sing it. But you know, that's, that's, that's it. That's what we're talking about today. None but Jesus. That's what we just declared. None but Jesus. All my delight is in you. So, welcome to Gateway Community Church. We've been talking for the last several weeks about spiritual growth. As we've done so, we have worked our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians, an ancient letter written to the Christians in the ancient city of Philippi. And we have heard repeatedly how the Apostle Paul has challenged us to step out of casual Christianity to kind of all in following him, all in behind him, all in Jesus. Well, honestly, today we're going to look at one of the most epic passages in the entire New Testament. And I'm afraid already in advance, I'm warning you, I'm afraid I'm not going to do it justice. This passage is mostly testimony from Paul, and it's beautiful and it's elegant. There are a couple of instructive things that he gives at the end of this passage. But what we're going to do this morning is tease out several helpful hints from this passage that really do speak to our capacity and what encourages and fosters in us spiritual growth. So we are going to tease out seven helpful hints for spiritual growth. It will actually help us dive in. Now, seven is too many points to cover for any normal crowd. A couple of observations. Number one, this is not a normal crowd. Number two, we're going to take a break in the middle. And we're going to sing another song just to give ourselves a breather. Because we're going over, again, seven helpful hints. Now the problem with going over that many points is you don't really have time to dial in and kind of tease them out and make them all real for all of us. So you're going to have to work with me. As we go through these seven, I'm going to encourage you to grab the one or the two or the three that really speak to you and light you up, and then you do some thinking, your own, about how that might work itself out in your life. We're looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Now, if you have a smartphone, if you would go to mygateway.life, there's a sermon card on that. And if you go to that sermon card, hit that sermon card, it will bring up today's passage, and you can read along with us. Or if you have a Bible, we would love for you to open the Bible to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, but I'd love for you to be dialing in. I'd love for you to be looking along as we go through this. So mygateway.life, if you go there in your browser, open up the sermon card, you can find today's sermon, and it will give you the passage and a place where you can write down the seven helpful hints for today. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, again, uh, one of the most epic passages in the entire New Testament. So we often do this at Gateway, but we're especially going to do this today. 
Let's stand out of reverence for God's word. Let's go old school. And I'm going to ask Gloria if she would read Philippians 3, 1 through 16. As you're reading along, I want you to put your most encouraging face on. Gloria just told me she has stage fright. So Gloria is going to read Philippians 3, 1 through 16. And let's hear God's word. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining to, toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Thank you, Gloria. You may be seated. Father, we ask for that amazing work of yours again today, that you would break open our hearts and speak. We have come today for a variety of reasons, and we are in a variety of places. Some of us not yet locked into you, are not in relationship with you. Some of us are no longer in relationship with you. And some of us, Lord, have been tracking with you for a long time, and today we're tired. Some of us, Lord, are excited and encouraged. And we need you to do what only you can do, to speak to each of us where we are, drawing us up and drawing us out. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. So seven helpful hints for our spiritual growth, for us to grow spiritually. Helpful hint number one, we need to remember Remember, self-salvation projects will not work. Self-salvation projects will not work. This is a consistent theme for Paul, and it is a really important theme for suburban Americans to remember. If you're the underlining type, by the way, then underline the phrase, put no confidence in the flesh, in verse 3 of this passage. By that, Paul means this. We are not people who rely on ourselves to make our lives count. We are not people who relate to God through our own effort. We are not people whose aim it is to make ourselves better people. Our spiritual lives do not center themselves around our effort 
or our control at all. That's what he means by flesh. Here's what he says. He says, rejoice in the Lord. No matter the circumstances, choose to rejoice in the Lord. This is a settled decision. We place our confidence in the Lord. We choose to find our joy in the Lord. And then he says, in effect, do not be drawn in by the Judaizers, or that's my summary anyway. Look at verse 2. When he says, those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, he's not talking about three categories of people. He's addressing a group of Jewish Christians who are trying to convince the Philippians that they need to become Jews and also believe in Jesus. Paul assures them that they don't need to be circumcised. They need only Jesus. We don't need go to churchism. Now, somebody's going to go home today and say, whoopee, Pastor Ed said we don't need to go to church. We don't need go to churchism. We don't need special spiritual gifts. These are not essential. They may be helpful to us, but we don't need them to pursue a spiritual life. We don't need the guitars at Gateway or the incense at our old church. We certainly don't need American do-goodism, and we don't need successful conservatism. We need Jesus. And Paul reminds us in verse 3 that the fuel of our worship of God, of our service to God, the fuel for it is the Spirit of God, not our effort. And listen to this. It's also not the structure of the church. That's not what fuels our worship or our service. This can be a problem in our thinking for some of us who had, by the way, the strongest religious traditions. If you grew up in a Bible Belt Baptist church or if you grew up in the Catholic tradition, you grew up thinking that that structure, that expression was the essence of religion, of spirituality. It isn't. Another danger is that sometimes these traditions lead us to believe that the whole point of it all is to know more and to behave better. That's not the point. The essence of our religion is trusting in what God has done through Jesus Christ. That's it. And the aim is to love God and love others. Self-salvation projects will not work. Making myself a better person leads most of us to addiction. We need Christ. Second thing that's a helpful hint for us in our spiritual lives, we need to adopt a healthy disregard for our own accomplishments. Hear that, Northern Virginians? We need to adopt a healthy disregard for our own accomplishments, our own resume. Let me read again verses 4 through 7, because this is awesome. I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he gives us his spiritual resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, which is the top of the order. As for zeal, look, I persecuted the church. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I don't know if you've seen this, but heard this in a podcast some time ago. There's a new trend in resume writing. People, of course, have realized that resumes, these companies get huge amounts of resumes, and they just spit out resumes. They reject them or accept them based on, like, certain criteria. So they're looking for seven or eight key words. And you may be a highly qualified candidate, but if your resume does not include those key words, they'll spit that resume out. 
So increasingly, I hope none of you have run into this, but I hear increasingly the trend in resumes is put hundreds of words in the resume, in the margins, in the in-between spaces, but wipe them out so only the computer reads them. So no matter what words they're looking for, your resume has that word on it. We want to have impressive resumes. More importantly, we want to be impressive people. Here's a weird trend in the suburbs that for years took Diane and I by surprise. We want to impress people with our children's resumes. We're constantly looking for excuses to introduce into the conversation the latest impressive thing that our child has done or is about to do. Paul had an impressive resume. He had studied under a well-known rabbi and had become a Pharisee of the highest reputation. He had, in fact, become an enforcer. He delivered violence to the cause of Christ. He was well-known and well-respected, and all of that he considered, quote, loss. Now, perhaps what he meant by that is that all of that is simply immaterial. He may have meant even more. He may have meant that his accomplishments were ultimately negative because they weren't in service of Jesus Christ. You know, I think this is a particularly challenging hint about spiritual growth for those of you who are under 40 because you're just now in the process of building your stinking resume. And I believe God wants you to do very, very well at what you do. I believe that honors him, but your spiritual growth requires that you adopt a healthy disregard for your own accomplishments. Some of you heard me say this before, but a number of years ago, I asked a young man to come up and just tell his story, give his testimony on a Sunday morning. And this young man was a talker. So I required that he write it out for me before he got up because I was afraid if I gave him the microphone, we'd be there all day. So I said, Eric, you know, I really want our church to hear your story. I want you to write it out for me. So he wrote it out for me. It's really good. And this is going to be great. So, you know, at this point in the service, have you come up, you grab the microphone and you just read your story. So he gets up there on a Sunday morning. It's exactly the right time. He comes up, he grabs the microphone. He's got, I'm going to disregard this script altogether. <laughs> no, please don't. And he gave a 90-second testimony. Here's the deal, y'all. What I used to think about work, wrong. What I used to think about women, wrong. What I used to think about myself, wrong. What I used to think about my accomplishments, wrong. God has completely reoriented my thinking. That's Paul's testimony. All of that is loss. That's what Christ is doing in us, and that's the kind of thinking that encourages spiritual growth. A third helpful hint, third helpful hint in our spiritual growth, we need to encourage our passionate longing to know Christ. We've got to encourage our longing to know Christ. Listen to what he says in verses 8 through 11. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage or rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from me being good and following the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I, I want to know Christ. 
Yes, I want to know the, the power of his resurrection, fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead myself. Paul is passionate about knowing Christ. In fact, when he compares knowing Christ to everything else, the everything else part is garbage, it's rubbish. And some have suggested that this word garbage is not a strong enough word to convey Paul's actual meaning here. The word refers to anything that is utterly worthless and thrown out. And if you think about the things that would have been thrown out by a family in the ancient Near East, it's not good stuff. As we said earlier, we've made a, a different point here than what Paul actually made. He's not offering a helpful hint about spiritual growth. He's really given us his personal testimony. Here's what he's saying. I want to know Christ and all that that means. I want to know the incandescent power that produced his resurrection. I want to know the servant heart that drove him to suffer for me. And I want to share in that heart and in those sufferings. I want to become so like him in his death that I will also experience the kind of explosive resurrection, real literal resurrection that he experienced. Again, this isn't instruction. This is testimony. But he does intend to inspire us. This is the shape that our hearts will assume as we grow in Christ. And this is the necessary heart condition if we are to experience dynamic spiritual growth. But if we're honest, many of us may not feel this kind of passion this morning. So let's say a word about that. This may sound foreign. It may even sound not appealing to some of us. So I want to speak frankly for a minute. If you don't feel this kind of passion, if this sounds like unapproachable super spirituality to you, it may be that you have not yet made a real connection to God. I'm not saying you're not a good person. You may even have religious inklings. But when the truth about Jesus Christ has gotten a foothold in our minds and hearts, when we've touched the edges of the love that God has for us, we understand this passion. Our passion may not always burn this hot, but we get it. That's why I think we need to see this as a helpful hint. In fact, Paul uses it that same way in other places. In, in Romans 12, 11, for example, Paul says this, Never be lacking in spiritual zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. In other words, encourage your passionate longing to know Christ. That's the point here. Whatever stokes your passionate longing to know Jesus Christ, throw that at your heart. Whatever stokes your longing to know Christ, throw that at your heart and mind. For some of you, it's great music. So listen whenever you can. Others of you stoking your heart, some of you are stoking your heart by, by listening to the Bible every day as you drive to work. Some of you are taking on service projects to get beyond the end of your own nose. I've heard from a couple of you who are starting to build a habit of reading the Bible and praying regularly, daily. Whatever stokes your passionate longing for Jesus Christ, throw that at your heart. Encourage your own passionate longing. Dive in, step in, do, just do it. Stoke that fire. Encourage your passionate longing. As you do, your heart will expand and your life and your influence will follow. Now, if you recognize this morning, just a word, if you recognize this morning that this passion has never been part of your life's chemistry, then all you need to do is do what the blind man did when he heard Jesus was coming. You need to cry out to him. 
Jesus, I don't know exactly what you can do, but I'm beginning to believe your story, and I'm beginning to believe it touches the edges of my life in the deepest way. And I'm increasingly seeing that I'm a mess. I've hurt others and myself, and I've sinned against you. I need to be rescued. Have mercy on me. Save me. I trust you. That's it. The Bible says that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And they have ransacked the language to find the most dramatic word that they can to describe that life-transforming experience of having that passion implanted in us. We're saved. The passion Paul testifies to will break into your life and it will interrupt the trajectory of your life. And the love of God will take root and begin to grow. All right, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to take a four-minute break and pause, and we're going to plow through the last four quickly. But these were awesome. Okay, let's spend some time, just for a second here, right in the middle. Let's spend some time dialing in with our minds and our hearts. This is us standing at the altar saying, I'd rather have Jesus. Right? So we're going to sing this morning, what a beautiful name it is. We're going to sing about the character of Jesus. And as we're doing so, we're going to remind ourselves that self-salvation projects will not work. Our accomplishments are a loss. They're garbage. And we're going to, right now, right now, we're going to do the best we can to encourage our own passionate longing to know Christ. Right now. You were the word at the i
God's people said, amen. What a powerful name it is. Four through seven. Number four, develop a holy dissatisfaction. Develop a holy dissatisfaction. Not that I have already obtained all this or, or have already been made perfect. I don't have it yet. I think the nuances of the words in this verse are interesting. Paul says this, not that I have already, and here's what the word means, not that I've already received, or not that I've already taken advantage of, or not that I've already obtained everything I've been talking about, or am I, and this word means fulfilled, or complete, or perfect, or as our version says, arrived at my goal. You see, Paul's pursuit of Christ rises out of a dissatisfaction with the way he is. Now, our remedy when we begin to feel dissatisfied with the way we are is we try to feel better about ourselves. But Paul pushes in an entirely different direction. I'm going to let Pastor John Piper explain this to us. One time when speaking about this exact point, Piper was talking about holy dissatisfaction, and he offered this. I'm going to read three paragraphs. Listen to this. Let's pause and clarify this, Piper says. Many people today would say, Piper, you are utterly out of touch with real people. People do not need a negative appeal to think more about their guilt. The malaise of American culture inside and outside the church is an epidemic of guilt and bad feelings about ourselves. Don't tell people that what they need is to develop more dissatisfaction. Do you really think people in your congregation like themselves? Piper responds, no, I don't. But I think real humbling guilt is extraordinarily rare. And I think 99% of our bad feelings about ourselves are rooted in pride. For example, he says, suppose you go to a dinner party and find out when you get there that you were dressed wrong, and then you spill your coffee, and then you don't know which fork to pick up first, and then the joke you attempt falls flat, and when you're leaving, you call your hostess by the wrong name. How do you feel about yourself when you get home? Rotten. You hate yourself. You're depressed. You don't want to show your face. You feel like quitting your job. What's the use? You're such a klutz. Now I ask you, where does all that low self-esteem come from? 
Whence all these depressing, immobilizing, self-denouncing feelings? Is the answer God's offended glory or your offended pride? People who are depressed and immobilized and angry because their behavior has injured the glory of God are very, very rare. But people who are depressed and immobilized and angry because their behavior has prevented them from having a reputation of being cool and competent are very, very common. When I plead with you to develop a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual life, I'm asking for something rare, not common. I'm not asking you to feel worse about your inability to appear cool and intelligent. I'm asking you to feel worse that you possess so little of Christ. What? And honestly, this point may be the starting point for genuine spiritual growth. We must develop a holy dissatisfaction. Fifth, we must forget the things which lie behind. He says that directly in verse 13. I'll bet almost every one of us here this morning know a marriage that's stuck. You may even be in one. It can't move forward because of one of the parties cannot forget a transgression. It may be the transgressor, or it may be the transgressee, but the injury is rehearsed and remembered and blocks the growth of the relationship. The same thing can happen in our relationship with God. We can get blocked by taking pleasure in past sins, by remembering, even in wanting them again. And we can get blocked by shame over past sins. We must become people who press ahead, or we will not grow spiritually. Now, this doesn't mean we don't remember things. Memory is an essential part of our spiritual tool belt. Some spiritual battles are only won by remembering God's mercy and faithfulness. But for some of us, this is a big one. We haven't forgotten the things which lie behind. And we need to spend some time reflecting on on what we remember and how those memories are impacting us. Because memories of successes in work or in relationships often engender pride or the wrong kind of longing. Memories of failures are sometimes paralyzing. So the sweet spot for us spiritually isn't constant remembering. The sweet spot is found in remembering on those occasions when it helps us move forward. We must forget what chains us to the past. We must forget what blocks our forward momentum, and that brings us to number six. Number six is strain forward to what lies ahead. Listen to Paul's language. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, God does not give his riches to aimless people. We are to strain forward. The word strain can also mean to stretch out, to reach for. Can you hear again the challenge away from casual spirituality? Without God, I can't. Without me, God won't. There is more for us, no matter how long or how short you've been at this. There is more, and we must stretch toward it. Interestingly, did you hear in verse 14 the word heavenward? That word's not in the original language. In fact, the English Standard Version translates this verse more strictly. Listen to this. It translates it, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Without question, our ultimate reward is to be with God forever. But I believe Paul is saying something even more here. He's saying, your life can be richer. It can be better. There's more. The call is upward now and into eternity. So let's stop here for a second. If you're really listening, 
and you have time to let this soak in. Many of us have to be tempted to question this. Some of us have to be thinking, Ed, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not some super spiritual person. I'm not a monk. I don't get this strain forward business. I think Jesus would say to us this morning, just try it. Try pressing into me. Do whatever it is that you do, that you know to do, and I'll bet I will meet you there. Press in. Some of us are thinking, Ed, you don't understand what I'm going through right now. I don't have the energy to stretch out, truthfully. I've been there, done that, and it's all good, but right now, I just don't have it. I honestly think Jesus would say, oh, but you do, and you must, especially now. Perhaps the key for you right now is not greater effort. Perhaps the key is greater surrender or greater rest. But idleness or paralysis or inertia, that's certainly not the key, and don't settle for that. And then my own favorite, I, I suspect there are some of us who, if we were honest, we would say, Ed, I, I feel like I stretched out sometimes and nothing happened. Maybe there isn't more unless it's just more of the same. Again, I think this might be the one I understand the most. I think Jesus would say, you're wrong. And I bet you know you're wrong. Take courage. Get back in the game. Stretch out. Strain forward, especially now. And get someone to pray for you and encourage you so that you can stretch forward. Let's strain forward to what lies ahead and then let's end with number seven. The last thing he says to us is, put into practice what you've been shown. Put into practice what you've already been shown. Mark Twain once said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. The number of people for whom their primary spiritual problem is that they need more information or more stuff, it's very, very small. They exist, and you may be here this morning, but you're in the minority. For most of us, God has inspired us God has spoken to us. We have felt moved in a direction or toward an idea or with a general feel. So let's do that. Let's step into what God has suggested. Generally, specifically, how has God moved you? How has he stirred you? What has he said? Do that. Concerning your pride, concerning your anger, in your role as a father, what has God said? What has stirred in your heart regarding your spiritual effort and getting involved here at Gateway with your friends in your marriage? What has God said? What has he stirred in you concerning your lust, concerning your finances, letting go of worry, letting go of discontent, thinking of others? Stepping away from Facebook, concerning your opinions, your advice, concerning your Bible reading, or your career, what has God said? Do that and watch him supply. Let's put into practice what we've been shown. Our participation in our relationship with God is like every effort we undertake. If we aim at nothing, we'll get what we aim at. Instead of that, let's remember that self-salvation projects will not work. 
Let's adopt a healthy disregard for our accomplishments. Let's encourage our longing to know Christ. Let's allow for our own holy and perhaps natural dissatisfaction with where we are. Let's forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. And let's put into practice what we've already been shown. Let's pray together. Lord, this seems like a lot. But you can make sense out of it for our hearts and our minds. And I pray in particular that you will apply this to each of us as each of us need. That you will make this real because, Lord, it's so important. The stakes are very, very high. Our lives are at stake. We thank you, Lord, for gathering us because we, we're convinced that none of us are here by accident. We thank you for speaking because we believe you have. We pray, Lord, that you will protect what you've done. Be the master of our lives. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks so much for coming. Go in peace.